Welcome. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Well, should we get started? Yes. Sure. Let's oh, get good job. Everybody's like, yeah, boy, you guys quiet down very nicely. Thank you. Well, we are so glad, so grateful for each one of you that are here today. But quite honestly, uh, Lynn and I feel a little bit like flight attendants. You know, we, we know that you had many choices today, and we're so grateful that you chose us. <laughs> Truly, I mean, there are so many great seminars. We all know that. So the fact that you're here to us means that you have a heart for the Lord and you want to know what God wants for you in his design and his purpose for you. So we're just glad you're here. So welcome. And we thought we would introduce you. I know a lot of you here, but I don't know all of you here. And Lynn, the same. So we thought since there's no one else to introduce us, we'd introduce ourselves to you. I'm going to introduce Lynn. And let me tell you something about Lynn. When I first met Lynn several years ago, there was just this instant connection because we learned really, really quickly that we share a lot of common passions. We're passionate about God and his word, for sure. Uh, We're passionate about teaching younger women to love God through the study of his word and to know him better through the study of his word. We are um, passionate about, if you ever listen to us talk, you would know instantaneously we're really passionate about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have all these things in common. We also have a very mm, offbeat sense of humor that we think we're just hysterical. (laughs) And even our husbands... They, even our husbands work for the same company, we found out. So that was, we just have all these, these things in common. Lynn came to Christ early in adulthood, something she's going to touch on a bit this morning. And um, she has been married to her husband, Chris. Chris is a sound guy. Hi, Chris. Give him a little wave. <laughs> okay, I just have to tell you this because this is so funny because we're talking about women's roles and everything. And we, like, we were joking because we have this weird sense of humor that, Lynn's going to be speaking and saying something really profound, and Chris is going to stand up in the back and go, liar! <laughs> something that about submission, right? <laughs> That's our sense of humor. <laughs> she actually is a submissive wife. I'm just teasing you. but um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You can try. But Lynn and Chris together, they're involved in Anchored, and they are certified biblical counselors. She has a podcast, which I highly recommend, called Utterly Astounded, which focuses on how to live and live for Christ in these really crazy last days. And she's involved in it and occasionally teaches at Every Woman's Grace. If that is not enough, in her spare time, she's writing a couple of books. So I think you're going to really enjoy getting to know Lynn this morning. As you will love getting to know Anne. And like she said, we met and immediately clicked all these things in common down to our husbands working in the same company. And she is a blast to talk to about theology, end times, eschatology, which we love to talk about, discipleship, and hospitality. And speaking of hospitality, how long have you had a Bible study in your home? 40-something years. 40 years. And she has been at Grace for 50 years. Five zero, And I'm years. only 49. <laughs> so. 
And she and her husband, Doug, have been married for 44 years. Mm-hmm. And they attend joint heirs. She serves in prayer room, EWG, Titus II, and the ladies' tea. And Doug and Ann have four children and nine grandchildren. So she's very busy in her spare time as well. Yes, I, I am, and I love them. Oh, sorry. I have a tendency to, when I see a face, I just, hi. You know. Sorry, I'll try to rein it in. Um, anyways, but you need to know, Lynn and I have... We've prayed over each and every one of you that are here today. We may not know your names, but we have prayed for each one of you that you're going to leave here this morning with a clearer understanding of what God has actually designed you for, what your purpose is, and how to glorify God in the role that he has given to you. We are probably all now familiar, ladies, with the moment in March that Marsha Blackburn, Senator of Tennessee, asked Supreme Court nominee, now Supreme Court judge, Katanji Jackson-Brown, to define the word woman. And she said she couldn't, and specified in the context of the situation, she was not able to do so, and then added she wasn't a biologist. That was sort of the shot over the bow, and a soon-to-be Supreme Court justice would earnestly conclude that she couldn't or wouldn't define what a woman was. And yet, here we are with thousands of years of marriage, procreation, raising children on every continent, country, and city, where apparently most people could tell you what a woman is. And now to the societal madness, where even the definition of woman has been called into question. So how did that happen? Listen to this quote. The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness and femaleness. It is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. The consequence is more divorce, homosexuality, emotional distress, and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. And that was written by John Piper 30 years ago. But isn't that true? Those biblical principles are timeless. So we are going to cover some of the cultural lies that have crept into the church and some that you might have even unwittingly accepted. And then we're going to talk about the truths that we can hold on to. Yeah. And you know what? We are very aware that this topic can be touchy. And some of you may kind of squirm a little bit when you hear some of these things. But we want to encourage you, this is a great time to ask yourself if you are in that position, why? If it's biblical and if it's true, why would it make you uncomfortable? Have you perhaps adopted some of this culture's words and worldview unwittingly, unknowingly adopted it? This is a good time to examine yourself and find out what you really believe. So our outline this morning, we're going to do history, which is a look back at feminism, and then we're going to do his story, a look into what God actually says about women's roles, and then his glory, a look into the purpose behind God's design for women. So Anne, you have done a lot of study (laughs) on feminism. (laughs) She's really studied this topic, and so she's going to take us back a little bit. We're going to do a little time travel And we're going to see how we have gotten to this point. Yeah, I have done a lot of study on this, and it's really interesting. It it fascinated me. 
Um, but I, what I've learned, it's not simply a recent event, feminism, but was, in fact, thousands of years of tiny steps away from God's very good plan for women. So we need to begin by looking, going back, like way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, sin first entered the world through Satan's very clever attack on God's design for men and for women. You notice he addressed Eve. He said to the woman. He didn't address Adam. And you know what? She took the bait. And Adam did what? He stood by silently, and he allowed her to do it. Satan began by asking a very simple question. Did God really say? And this is where it began, and truly this is where it always begins. We either believe and obey what our creator has commanded, or we don't. And Eve did not. In fact, God had actually said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Genesis 3, 6 gives us a little bit of insight into what made Eve decide to rebel against God. So it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So what do we see about how Satan appealed to Eve? Well, same way we see him appealing to us. Satan's lies were intended to appeal to her lust for food and her prideful desire to be as wise as God, which that seemed good to her. So she made that choice. Like Anne said, she didn't ask her husband, who was evidently standing right there. She just usurped his role as leader and led him right into Satan's evil scheme. So Adam was held accountable because he had been given the role of protector and provider, but we're not going to talk about him because this is all about Eve and women this morning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other subject. (laughs) But it is very, very significant that sin entered the world, and the sin that propelled all of mankind into sin began with certain things. First, not believing in the authority of the creator God. That was the first thing. Then they were, it was about being deceived and enticed to rebel against God and the roles he had given to men and women by believing that God was kind of holding back something good from them. It was desiring one's own will over and rather than the will of God. So the first sin we see was in direct violation of the rules that God had already set. Satan is such a deceiver, and he loves to cast doubt on the word of God, and he loves to cast doubt on God himself, who is the word. He always asks In your mind, did God really say? And in truth, nothing's changed to this day. Satan is now relishing 
in the worldly attitude of casting doubt on the very fundamental question of what is a man and what is a woman. God's design has been attacked at its very core. Once we begin to question what God has said, we are vulnerable. We're just like Eve with one really important distinction. Sin is a part of our story. Right. Sin has now marred everything that God created and called good. So we started with Genesis, and feminism really started in Genesis with Eve wanting to be autonomous. And now we're going to move toward recent history and talk about feminist roots. And Anne and I love history. So again, we just think that this is really fascinating. And some of you may be shocked to hear how godless the origins of feminism truly are. So continuing back with our look, we're going to talk about the first wave of feminism. And when was that? Well, we hope that you like history as much as we do. (laughs) But the first wave of feminism began in about 1848, mid-1800s. So it began in the late 19th century, early 20th centuries, and it emerged out of urban industrialism. And one of the women at the helm of this particular movement was a woman named Simone de Beauvoir. She was a French philosopher pre-World War II, and her beliefs were based upon and influenced by a philosophy held by her husband, called existentialism. Existentialism is the concept that the individual is entirely free and must therefore accept commitment and full responsibility for his acts and decisions because we live in an uncertain and purposeless world. That sounds very familiar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That is Satan's lie, isn't it? That life has no purpose and it is up to the individual. It's up to you to find your own purpose. But God's truth is much different. He says that everything he creates has purpose. Isaiah 43, 7 says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Mm -hmm. And John 1, 3 is such a good one. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But Simone believed that women were being denied the right to autonomy, which she considered the essence of human existence. They had a goal, and this goal was to open up opportunities for women with a particular focus on suffrage, which is the right to vote, and women's suffrage then attached itself to the temperance movement. That was the anti-alcohol movement. And then also it attached itself to the abolitionist movement, which is the ending of slavery. Now, that sounds really good, right? I mean, who can argue with that? Equal rights for women, for people of color, and the end of alcohol consumption. But ladies, things that look good and sound good are not always good because this is Satan's way. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Then in 1910 came a woman named Margaret Sanger. You've heard a lot about her lately, right? <laughs> yeah, she's, her name's been in the news recently. And uh, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood, and she made it her mission to provide contraceptive and birth control for all women. She believed that women were enslaved by having children and that their health was at risk. 
she had other passions as well, and one of them was population control. She believed that that all the children that were being born around the world had potential to endanger the world's natural resources. We hear a lot about that these days, too. Along with birth control and abortions, she also championed eugenics. Eugenics are kind of how to arrange human reproduction in a way that increases the more desirable characteristics, and it kills off the less desirable characteristics. Eugenics became very well known during World War II when Nazi Germany used it in their treatment of the Jewish people, disabled people, minority groups, and Christians. The first woman, remember, was given the name Eve. And do you know what that means? It means life or full of life. Margaret Sanger was consumed with ending or controlling life. And this was a direct assault on God's design for women. So that was the first wave, and that was the 1800s, early 1900s. And then we have what was termed the second wave. Yeah. And when was that? Well, the first, the second wave started around 1963, early 1960s, and it went to the about 1980-ish. Um, the first and second world wars had caused a lull in the movement. Uh, The world was a little busy during those times. So it had caused a lull in the movement, but it reared up again in the late 1950s and the early 60s. But this time, it attached itself to civil rights and the civil rights movement specifically. Women began to be seen at this time as an oppressed group. Was there any truth to this? Well, of course there was truth to that. Any time... Sinners are involved. There is going to be sin and pain within relationships. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. We all know that, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Simone de Beauvoir, she led the first wave. What about the second? Who leads that revolution? Uh, Well, another woman entered the scene around that time. Um, So just picture with you. Picture with me, if you will. (laughs) There's a woman sitting in her kitchen. She's got a toddler and a newborn baby. She's recently been fired from her job because, of course, you didn't work in the early 1960s after you had children. Maybe she's just changed another poopy diaper, or the toddler has spilled their juice, or she's just gone to the store. You know the routine. All of you who have had children, we know the routine. And, you know, she perhaps thought man, this routine has become very mundane. It has become very unfulfilling. And she looked around her home and she wondered to herself, is this, is this all there is to life? I'm bright. I'm interesting. I have a college degree. And she did. She went to a very well-known college. Shouldn't there be more to life than this? Well, she decided, I know. I'm going to send out a survey to my college girlfriends and see if they feel the same way. And guess what? They did? Uh Uh-huh. They felt the same way. Imagine that. So she invited them at that point to join her to discuss the plight that they were in. Um, Find out if if they were also discontented. So she invited them to join her, and her name was... Anybody guess? 
Betty Friedan. Her name was also a very well-known woman. Which we have this really cute vintage picture. Don't you? I love it. I love the pillbox hat. She's the one right there in the, in the middle. So she's not the gal at the very left. She's not next to the Second gal at from the, the left. left. Second from the left. But they all look so, so cute in their little outfit. Unfortunately, you know, they were like they weren't doing cute. Satan's work. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> Betty Friedan was um, an American political activist, and she was a journalist. And she sees the opportunity to highlight the problems between men and women by doing this, by encouraging women to rebel against their role as wives and mothers. She claimed that these roles were a form of oppression, the buzzword. Betty invited all these women to a hotel room to discuss and to complain about the roles that they had found themselves, and then to reevaluate their roles. She used the seed of discontent to ignite the second wave, which ignited very slowly at first. It actually didn't catch on real fast. But remember, it began with 15 women in a hotel room. With those women, she formed the first consciousness-raising groups, which sprouted all over the United States and around the world, actually. And she organized NOW. Anybody know what that is? The National Organization for Women, which is still around to this day. So gathering people together to complain is contrary (laughs) to God's word. (laughs) Lynn, what does Philippians say about that? Philippians 2.14, we know that one, right? Do all things without grumbling and, and complaining. So we see again from this one seed, though, of discontentment, a destructive movement was born, and the fallout has been tremendous. Being discontent yourself and then stirring up others' discontentment is so natural to us, and we know from Scripture that that's really our default position. So as humans, it has proven to be quite effective to set our hearts against God. Even if you remember in Numbers 11, you have a little group start to complain about the manna, and the next thing you know, the entire camp, like all two million of them, were weeping and wanting to go back to Egypt for the food. (laughs) I mean, I get that part, but... (laughs) Numbers 14, 27, God says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? It doesn't take much. We know that in our own lives. But this is key. Identifying a problem and finding a solution to the problem are two different things. These women identified a problem. I'm discontent in my circumstances. But their solution, like the Israelites saying, we'll go back to Egypt, was terrible. It was a terrible idea. Their solution was basically, let's start a rebellion. So... God has already identified the problem, sin. We are all sinners. Romans 8, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So instead of looking to God, these second wave feminists look to themselves. So they saw the problem and then this was their solution. Men were the problem, not sin. (laughs) Men were the ones who had defined roles, not God. Men were the ones who had developed biblical theology because men wrote the Bible. It's not God's word. And feminists found the idea of God being a he and a father and a judge and a king very offensive. So patriarchy was the problem. And we hear that word all the time now, don't we? Oh, all the time. And it was really because they, they began by asking the wrong questions. So, of course, 
they came up with the wrong solutions. Their solution was to redefine God. You know, if you make up your own God, then you can make up your own rules, right? This is rooted in existentialism. Remember, that's the philosophy that basically says your own way by your own will. They wanted to redefine the roles of men and women, make them completely interchangeable. And the end game was always the elimination of the roles of men and women. And ladies, this is why we now have a Supreme Court justice in the United States of America who is unable to define what a woman is. The whole goal is to eliminate God's design and purpose for men and for women. But this lie has been cleverly and patiently and very intentionally absorbed into our thinking. When I went to college, um, well, let me go back a little. Even before I went to college, in 1969, there were two universities that had the very first women's studies programs. One was Cornell University, and one was just down the road, San Diego State University. By the time I hit college in the later 1970s, there were hundreds of women's studies programs. And then by the time I hit college, I think there were thousands. And today also you have the feminist study, but then you also have the gender study. And, you know, Gloria Steinem became the voice of feminism in the late 60s, early 70s. And you know what? She still is. And she's in her late 80s right now. And she is still I just being saw her in the news interviewed. I know. This week. Yeah, she's, she's still being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is fascinating. I just learned this the other day. Elizabeth Elliot's. And if you don't know who Elizabeth Elliot is, then that needs to change today. <laughs> Elizabeth sure. Elliot actually, I learned this from this book, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. This biography about her life, isn't it so good? And at the end, I learned that Gloria Steinem debated Elizabeth Elliot on college campuses in the 60s. And I, last night I was up like, YouTube, a transcript, can I find anything? I couldn't find anything, but would that not have been fascinating? Oh, wow. Just I fascinating. I would have loved to have been there. I read a lot of her material, not Elizabeth's, to my shame, Gloria Steinem's <laughs> material, when I was young and not a believer, and wanting to blame someone for my problems. And the easiest solution in the world, the most comfortable, was exactly what Gloria and all the other feminists presented to me. The reason you're miserable is because you want so much more than you have, and you're being oppressed, and you're just a servant, and you deserve better. So you better get out there and fight for what you want. So I did. I picked up my Keep Abortion legal sign, and I protested. And I yelled at people and told them that they were not going to tell me what to do with my body. You know what? It didn't help. Not one iota. It did nothing for my misery and discontentment. It only fueled it. It's interesting that Gloria Steinem said, the first problem for all of us, men and women, is not to learn but to unlearn. So subtext, ditch the traditional roles. Unlearn what God says and teach what the world says is true. Our pastor, John MacArthur, says of the feminist agenda, 
its real ideological goal is to literally obliterate any recollection of creation and the Bible, Christ and the gospel. And there you have it. Mm -hmm. That's what's happened. Satan, the big fat liar that he (laughs) is, will tell us that we are all autonomous. We are masters of our own destiny. You know, how many of you in this room have told somebody or been told yourself, you can be anything you want to be? I'm really glad that that did not... (laughs) I just have to say this. Thankfully, some well-meaning counselor did not encourage my dreams of becoming a Paris ice skater. (laughs) Because who is going to throw a six-foot woman up into the air and catch her on the ice? (laughs) Nobody. We cannot be anything we want to be. That's a lie from Satan. It sounds funny, but, you know, look where it's gotten us. God has the truth here. There are only two choices for all of mankind. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So, ladies, we have talked about the first and second wave of feminists, and where are we now? Oh, well, that's, <laughs> it's kind of fluid, actually. Um, it depends on who you read. We are either in the third or probably the fourth wave of feminism. Feminists had taught us that we women need and can trust no other authority other than our own personal truth. And this ideology really took hold. In this third wave, though, there was a decidedly different tactic that was embraced by these feminists. They moved from reform to rebellion, and women were encouraged to fight against any form of patriarchy. Women were not to be told what to do on any level. They could do, they could act, they could say, they could be whatever they decided for themselves. These feminists joined forces with gender theorists who were promoting trans rights and other things. And this was a new day for feminism. It now had become intersectional feminism. And we see this all the time, don't we? I know you guys read the same things I read. It is a chaotic time right now. This radical philosophy, which began with, remember, 15 women in a hotel room with Betty Friedan encouraging them to complain back in the 1960s. It's now mainstream. We want you to listen to just a few quotes here. By the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not God. No gods, no masters. Humanism and feminism is about rejecting a God that looks like the ruling class. In order to raise children with equality, we must take them away from families and communally raise them. We've got to get them away from any male influence. We women need and can trust no other authority than our own personal truth. Faith allows an evasion of the difficulties which the atheist confronts honestly. So every quote you just heard comes from the female leaders of the feminist movement. And what do you notice about those quotes? They're all 
godless. And the thread is atheism. And that's very well documented. You can look that up. Yeah. yeah. But God's word is so different. Remember Genesis 3.13 says, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She was seduced, she was beguiled, and she was led astray. This, ladies, today is an opportunity for us to all ask ourselves, for you to ask yourself what you might be buying into. What lies have seduced you and beguiled you and led you astray? Because Satan's lies are deceptive by design. You may not even be aware of how these lies have influenced you in your everyday life. The world tells us that our worth and fulfillment comes from our own personal accomplishments, right? What we look like, our successes, maybe our earning power. But the truth is, the purpose given to us by our creator is where true fulfillment can come from. It's where it is found. And this was really driven home to me. Um, Many years back, I was able to attend an event with my husband, and I had the opportunity and really great privilege to meet a woman astronaut. And as we stood there at this event and we were just chatting back and forth, I had so many questions. I asked her all about her upcoming mission and how she'd gotten to this point in her career. She was so smart. She was so friendly. She was engaging and she was extremely accomplished. She was a naval captain, a medical doctor, a space shuttle mission specialist, and a NASA (laughs) astronaut. (laughs) But, but, But get this, when I asked her about, you know, do you have a family? Tell me about your family. Ladies, that is when her entire face just lit up. And we spent the next five or ten minutes where she told me all about her husband and her six-year-old son. And it was so clear to me where her heart really was. A year or so after that conversation, I followed her mission as she went up in the space shuttle. And then I watched in horror with the rest of the world as the shuttle that she was on blew apart over Texas. And all I could think about, all I could think about was that little boy sitting in Texas and a mom who loved him with her whole heart and was probably thinking of him in those last moments. Don't get us wrong. There is absolutely nothing wrong with being successful in the arena that God has placed you in or placed any of us in. In fact, doing things with excellence is a biblical principle because the world is watching us and we need to do everything we do with excellence. But eventually, ladies, we will all find out that our purpose is found in something much greater than anything worldly or any success that this world can offer us because God's purposes carry with them eternal implications, something that can never be found here on this earth, no matter how successful you are. Ephesians 3, 11 tells us exactly that. It says, he has made everything, everything beautiful in its own time, but also he's put eternity into man's heart. That's Ephesians. I mean, I mean Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. 
Yeah. Did I? You say said it? Ephesians. Oh, Ephesians three eleven is really good too. It but, is. It but is that good. verse is Ecclesiastes three eleven. Thank you. It is another big E. It is Ecclesiastes three eleven. Thank you. That's why we need we need to team up. But God's design is truly deeply ingrained in the hearts of all women, whether we choose to submit to them or whether we choose to rebel against them. What's more, God has given us instruction through his word on his greater purpose. That is such an amazing story, an amazing story, and a great example between the difference between worldly success and God-given purpose. So we looked at history, and now we're going to look at his story, what God actually says about women and their roles, and where he identifies the real problems and gives us the only solution. So we know that we are created in God's image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And we know that this is a unique and wonderful truth. Man was created as royalty in God's world, male and female alike, bearing the divine glory equally. God is creator, and everything he made is good, and the way he designed us is good. His commandments are good, and how to operate within our designed roles, that's all good. So the Hebrew word for image signifies a copy, but also carries with it the idea of representation. We know that. We're image bearers, and we represent God in the world. In Psalm 100, verse 3 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, which is a direct, in direct opposition to being autonomous. So what is unique about God's creation of woman? Well, we are created differently. Man was made from the dust but woman was made from man. I think sometimes we forget that. Scripture says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, which is his perfect Mm -hmm. complement. Genesis 2.22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So part of our identity is highly relational. We're drawn to intimacy and connection and relationships. And it's not, it's not true for every single woman. There's little you know, variations here and there, but most of us. And it's not to say that men aren't interested in those things either. However, we were talking about this. My husband, <laughs> Anne's husband, your husband, or if you're single, a male friend has probably not come out of the bathroom and said, oh, I just met the best guy and we just became fast friends and I invited him to our fellowship group and you know probably not right it's one of the unique ways that he has made women yeah so true and I have done that so many times my husband just laughs he goes again like seriously but women were created very differently we were also created to be a helper Genesis 2 20 says but for Adam there was not a helper, uh, not found a helper fit for him. Now, a helper is one of those words um, that we can kind of get squirmy about. Um, (laughs) When you read that God created women to be a helper, does that sound kind of funny to you sometimes? (laughs) Does it make you feel a little bit, "Mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. (laughs) So we need to rethink what God means by helper. The word helper can 
actually, if you think of it in a worldly term, it can make us think of a second-rate position, like something that is not as valuable as the one being helped. This version looks a little bit like the hired help, but this is so far from the biblical view of helper. If you are put off by the term helper, you've probably allowed the worldly influence to cloud your thoughts, and you need to reorient your thoughts and your thinking toward biblical truth. A true helper lives for Christ and specifically for his glory. This kind of helper is meant to showcase a part of God's character in ways that men are just not equipped to do. The Greek word for helper means giving aid and being a comfort. It's to lend strength or to change for the better. I like what John MacArthur says about Genesis 2. He says that this verse emphasizes Adam's need for a companion, a helper and an equal. And he says that this points to Adam's inadequacy, not Eve's insufficiency. We have a lot of examples of helpers in Scripture, but most importantly, the Trinity. I mean, the Bible, the biblical view of helper is so laid out beautifully for us. The Holy Spirit is the helper. John 15, 26 tells us that when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The Lord Jesus Christ is our helper. Matthew 15, 25, if you remember, there's a story in there about the Canaanite woman who went to Jesus just to beg him to heal her daughter. And it says she came and knelt before Christ and she said, Lord, help me. And then also in Hebrews 13, 6, love this one. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God, the Father, is our helper. Psalm 33, 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord, for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. Now, what is notably not found in Scripture is any references to humans helping God. Again, this points to who God is, his holiness, his supremacy, his power, his mercy, and his grace to us. To be a helper is really to be a bit more like Christ. And as Lynn mentioned from Genesis 2, we're created to be a helper. All Christians, men or women, we're all called to help. Um, Even some of us have the gifts of helps, uh, both men and women. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So what does a woman who is a helper look like? Well, honestly, it's going to look very different for a lot of us, depending on what God has called to you at this particular time in your life. But here are just a couple of ways that any of us can always be a helper. This is always applicable. She prays for the men in her life, the pastors, the elders, the fathers, the sons, the brothers, the friends, the husbands. 
Second Corinthians 1.11 says, You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Also, all of us can do this. She sees and takes care of the needs of others. Titus 3.14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Ladies, are you still feeling like being a helper is a bit of a second-rate position? Because if so, are you prepared to say that God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are second-rate? Of course not. This is when defining our words and our terms is so important. Yes, as God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that's in the context of marriage. So if you're married, you are a helper to your own husband. That is your primary ministry. But what if you have no husband to be a help to? What if you're single or widowed or divorced? And if that is true, you can still keep your home and make it beautiful. You can still work with your hands, give to the poor, walk in strength and honor, open your mouth with wisdom, be kind, fear the Lord. Notice I'm reciting the Proverbs 31 woman. We can all still do that. 1 Peter 3, 4 says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And you can cultivate that, married or not. You can help your brothers and sisters in Christ, married or not. When I was single, I was single until just shy of 40, so I, I still thought my role in the church was to help, to be a helper. I still, I still saw myself doing that. And for instance, I pursued biblical counseling so that I could help bear the burdens of the saints. That's just one example. And as we quoted scripture just a minute ago, all believers are called to help the week. So the important truth, ladies, is that we see being a helper uniquely designed for that role as a good thing and to not be influenced by what the culture says about it. Now, in the same way, being a helper might have caused you to squirm. So might the word submission. (laughs) If it makes you uncomfortable... It could be that you have a little bit more of a worldly view of that word as well. The word submission has been misused, and we don't have time to talk about that in its fullness. We simply want to say that this is what God says about it, and so should we. We need to be on God's page. So we wanted to discuss being a helper and submission because those are the two hot-button topics that seem to be perverted by the world. So I love this definition. We can all practice this, to yield without complaining, okay? To yield without complaining. And you know, we are living in a time when people are basically encouraged to be and do whatever they want, to protest and complain against authority to an extent that I have never seen in my lifetime. Starting, I think, in 2020, it became the worst I've ever seen. Now, I just picked one social justice topic of the day, right? That was the BLM um, protests and riots in 2020. And I just wanted to show you this because these are riots and protests. And I just wanted to say that this is what we're looking at as far as the all-out rebellion 
of us as a society. It just covers the entire map. And I just think that's really significant. And then you have today the Roe versus Wade being overturned. And if you read about that, if you read the news articles about that, you hear words like fury, rage, bans off our bodies, no gods, no masters. Margaret Sanger would be proud, unfortunately. (laughs) So, however, for us, Scripture says in James 4, 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, this is so key. First and foremost, God owns all things, and he has authority over all things, and he delegates the human authority, but he's the owner of it all. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them. Ephesians five twenty two, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, wives submit to your husbands is a topic all to itself, just like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church is a topic all to itself. So we don't have time, again, to go into that today. But just, we would say, submit to the delegated authorities in your life unless they abuse their delegated authority. That's just a tagline you can think of. And there is proper action to take if that is the case, if someone's abusing their delegated authority. But most of us, ladies, honestly, where do we live? Here's where we live submitting to God in circumstances that we don't like. Mm -hmm. Submitting to our husbands when they ask us to stay within the budget. (laughs) I'm looking at my husband right now. Or submitting to our bosses when asked to do work that's not in our job description. Submitting to governmental authority when they are so deeply antagonistic against what is godly. Generally, that's where we live. That's where we have a hard time. 1 Peter 5.5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So God has inscribed on our hearts, on all of our hearts, on mankind, the rightness and the beauty of role distinctions. People just know it when they see it, even unbelievers. When you're rightly obeying God in the role he's given you and rightly submitting, you're a light and you're an example to believer and unbeliever alike. Remember, submission, just like being a helper, nothing about being second place or less than. In God's eyes, it's the best place to be. Jesus submits to the Father, though he is in no way inferior to God the Father. Likewise, we are not inferior to the earthly institutions God has told us to submit to, whether that be the government or a boss or a husband or the church elders. Submission, think about this, is beautiful because it was necessary for our redemption. So we have to see that as a beautiful part of God's character and therefore take joy in the role that he has given us in that. We are commanded to have the same attitude as Christ. And this is Philippians 2, 5 and 7 and 8. Let this mind be of you, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If we thought about that more often, ladies, I think that we would be more submitted in our attitude. So when we think about what God says about submission, we got to think about where our thinking has been tainted. Do we really believe, has God said, do we really believe it's true? And then are we actually living this way? Are we doing it? Rebellion against God's design in creation, in our roles as helper, submission is not new and it's not neutral. Know that the enemy seeks to make us think like the world and rebel against what God has said. So honestly, we have to be so vigilant in our thinking, putting off the wrong thoughts and standing strong in the word of God because we are in a battle. We are, we are in a battle. We are fighting a battle. The battle is real, ladies. <laughs> and I love it that she said it's not new because we saw that in Genesis and it is definitely not neutral. It is a battle. But I've got good news because <laughs> God has taught us how to fight this battle. In Colossians 2.8, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophies and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So if you just take that one verse apart, see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive. Be aware of what you're taking in, ladies. Be aware of what you're believing And stay away from the philosophies that come from this world. Because if they come from this world, it means they come from Satan himself. Be aware of that little nagging, did God really say that? Because the only way to be sure of what God really said is by what? To know his word, right? Right, Be aware and don't be taken captive. Oh my goodness, these philosophies, we see it all the time. They will grab you and you will become enslaved by these beliefs. But we are slaves to Christ, the one who created us for his purposes and redeemed us with his own blood. These philosophies, philosophies mean the pursuit of wisdom from the world instead of from God. That's what a philosophy is. And then basing your entire life upon these philosophies. This verse says these philosophies, excuse me, are full of empty deception. They make a lot of promises, but they're always going to leave you empty and hopeless. Mm -hmm. They come from the traditions of men, not from God. And it it says this, I love this part, it's so crazy. They're the elementary principles of the world. In other words, they're really simplistic. You know, why would we women base our entire lives upon the rules and ways that are set by a preschooler? They're not according to Christ. They're not from Christ because Christ alone is our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our faithful bridegroom, and our king. Mm Mm-hmm. The rebelliousness that began in the garden has indeed crept in, and it's even crept in, sadly, to the church. Mm -hmm. Not Grace Community Church, but the big C church. (laughs) 
And it has crept in to the point where we're even seeing people making women pastors Mm -hmm. and it accepted as pastors and saying it's a good thing. And it's clearly against God's word, but it began, did God really say, well, you know what? He, he did. did say. <laughs> he, did. he actually did in 2 Timothy 2.12. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Yeah. Boom. There's, I don't know how you interpret that differently. God did say. But that's one of the ways I know that the church is compromising with female pastors and so much more. There's so much more going on too. But when we are committed to glorifying God through our roles, we can expect the world to reject us, right? And ridicule us and be, you know, violent sometimes. So we are without a doubt, ladies, at a time where I think this scripture is becoming all the more real, which is Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is Jesus talking. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I'm so glad that that scripture is in there because So much of this happens, and so makes just scripture so much more true. If you are true to the gospel, it may result in strained family relationships. (laughs) I'm sure that we all have at least one family member with whom we differ on this issue, on any of these issues. Submission, being a helper, staying in our roles, the gospel. Mm -hmm. You might have had one or two heated discussions, right? with somebody in your family or friends. Well, I think we need to be prepared for a lot more. And when it comes to losing everything, though, for the sake of submission to God, we have a great example of a woman who humbly accepted the role God gave her, regardless of the pushback that she faced. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when Lynn and I got together, Mm -hmm. we were discussing this, and both of us, the name Mary, immediately Mm -hmm just popped into our minds because Luke one twenty six tells us the story of Mary. And the world, we know, sees her kind of as a mom. She was a mom. She was the, the mom of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the real lesson that we can learn from her today is um, really found way before she was a mom or before she was married. It says in Luke 1 that she was favored by the Lord. She had found favor with God. Well, why? It tells us because she believed, she believed that nothing will be impossible with God. And, and she submitted to the Lord as his servant. She wanted his will more than her own will. And what could this submission have cost Mary? Could have cost her a lot. It could have cost her her reputation. She was going to be married or unmarried and pregnant. Mm-hmm. Not a good thing, in, especially in those days. Nowadays, nobody cares, but in those <laughs> days, it was a big deal. It would have cost her her future. Who is going to marry her now? How is she going to live? How is she going to support herself? Her submission also could have cost her her love. Remember, she was betrothed to Joseph, the man she loved. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, it could have cost her her very life because the penalty for adultery was death by stoning. And that is not an easy way to die. (laughs) But Mary believed God. She was bold 
And her submission to God propelled her to step out in faith and receive what God had for her life. She said this. She said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's Luke 138. What a, that's a perfect sub- submission yeah. verse. And I love how she goes on to praise God, too, when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And he leaps in her womb. And when she hears Mary's greeting, Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which are told to her. Blessed is she who believed. We need to believe God more, put off unbelief every time it comes around, and it comes around often, and believe God more. Mm-hmm. And her submissive heart and her courageous, very courageous obedience resulted in God's blessing to mm-hmm. all of his children through the Lord Jesus Christ. It also gave her personally great joy because she was glorifying God through the specific role that he had designed specifically for mm-hmm. her. Being submitted to God and subsequently to any authority he's placed over you is a very strong position to be in mm-hmm. because you're in God's will. It is, there, there actually is no more protected or fortified place than being in the middle of God's will, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doing what he has called you to do and being appropriately submitted is a position of incredible strength, ladies. I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. That is really an important point. We're strong there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're the most strong when we are doing what he tells us to do. So we've looked at some of the history, ladies, of how we got here and his story, what God says about our roles. And now we're going to talk about the purpose. This is our last point this morning. We need to understand what motivates us. And it's God's glory. It's always God's glory. Yeah. And so we're going to start with something maybe you've heard of, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it asks this question. You guys can probably recite it to me. You gals, sorry. You ladies can probably recite it. What is the chief end of man? Um, Many of you know the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? And while this is not a phrase that's directly drawn from scripture or quoted from scripture, that is, the wisdom behind it is surely there in scripture because the Bible tells us with great clarity that man was created in order to bring glory to God. Right. But ladies, we can't do that unless we know him and you can't truly know him unless you repent and believe. So if you are here this morning and you don't know about this life, we are describing, and maybe you've had some church background, but you've never really understood the fullness of faith. Maybe someone brought you today to listen. Maybe you wandered in off of Roscoe Boulevard. Whatever it is, you are here for a purpose, and that would be to understand your need for the Savior. And I remember it well before I was born again, this no sense of purpose or hope or no real understanding of what my life meant. And as I said in the beginning, right, I accepted feminism as an outlet for my anger and for the fact that I couldn't make sense of my life. But feminism, just like everything else aside from Jesus, was a dead end. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, not even one, not you, not me, no one. We are all disqualified. 
But we tend to compare ourselves to others and think, but we're not as bad as that person over there. Or we didn't do that, so they're, they're worse. But that's the wrong standard. You have to compare yourself to God's standard, which is perfection. And I know when I was championing women's rights and arrogantly shouting down all of those Christians who had come to those rallies to support life, I thought I was doing what was good and right, that I was 100% right, but I was 100% wrong. Christ is the only righteous one, and he took the place of sinners by dying on the cross and shedding his own blood and satisfied God's penalty for sin and then opened the invitation for whosoever believes. Those who don't believe and repent will face outer darkness upon death, eternally separated from God the Father in hell. That's horrific. We want that for no one. Again, if this is new to you, please do not leave here without talking to one of us this morning. I have a great quote from Elizabeth Elliot, speaking of Elizabeth Elliot, which I, I just couldn't help it last night. I was even telling my husband this morning, I'm like, the arrogance of Gloria Steinem to get on stage <laughs> with the likes of Elizabeth Elliot. Like, really? Did you go to a Stone Age tribe that were, you know, <laughs> killing people and your husband was spared to death and then you took your little three-year-old to, um, to live with them so that, they could, so that they could hear the gospel? Did you do all that? <laughs> anyway, that just got stuck in my mind today. Like, little sick. Wow. <laughs> wow. So she says, Elizabeth Elliot says, the fact that I am a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian, but the fact that I am a Christian makes me a different kind of woman, okay? And it certainly did me 30 years ago, and I'm sure if you are here today and you are a Christian, you would say the same, and it should be that way. We should be different than we used to be before Christ, and we should be radically different from the world. Romans 11.36 says, from For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. But we have more lies from Satan. And one of the lies that we sometimes fall into and believe is that if my life circumstances were just different, I would be in a better position to glorify God. Mm -hmm. But God says something different once again. He says that we're able to glorify God in whatever place we currently find ourselves in. And we can look to Paul for our example in that. He continually found himself in precarious circumstances. Am I right? Um, Acts 20, 24 says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and my ministry, that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of of God. We also see this attitude of um, accepting with um, praise to the Lord the role that God has placed you in in the life of Leah. She... Boy, I tell you, I love the life. We can all relate to Leah. We have, I think women, we all have great empathy Mm -hmm. for Leah. Mm -hmm. Um, But God taught this very important lesson to her. Um, So she kept popping into my mind along with Mary. And so I went to the story of 
Leah, found in Genesis 29. And I learned, I was trying to find out how do you glorify God in the role that God has placed you in when it may not be the role that you desired or that you ever saw yourself in. And some of you can relate to that. Leah, who was the weak-eyed, unattractive, older sister of beautiful Rachel, she was used by her own father to get seven more years of work from Jacob, and she was the unloved wife Mm -hmm. of Jacob. She was then resented by her own sister because she had been given children and Rachel had not. Ladies, I'm pretty sure that this was not the life that Leah had envisioned for herself and had spent her life praying for. Mm -hmm. But we learn from her how to glorify God even when we're sad and we're hurt and we're disappointed. God gave Leah children. The first she named Reuben, and she named him that for a reason. It means because the Lord saw her. The second she named Simeon, and she named him that because the Lord heard her. The third she named Levi because she desired, she desired that attachment um, and that presence mm-hmm. of Jacob so badly, which she never got, by the mm-hmm. way. But she did have the presence and the attachment of the Lord. And then she had Judah. Mm-hmm. And you know what she named him? Praise the Lord. That's what Judah means. And you can find that story in Genesis 29, verses 32 through 35. Ladies, Leah never received the love from Jacob that she so desperately wanted, but she received so much more from the Lord, didn't she? Because he saw her. He heard her. He was present with her. He never left her. And she gave him, eventually, all the praise and all the glory. Leah truly exemplified Psalm 37, verse 4, that says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We Mm -hmm. so often misinterpret that verse. Because God did not give her what she desired. What Mm -hmm. he did is he used her pain and her sorrows and her agony Mm -hmm. to transform her desires, and then he gave her so much more than she could have ever imagined. Leah ladies, is in the direct line of Jesus Christ through her son, Judah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, which I love that. That's such a picture of Mm -hmm. the heart of God, isn't it? Awesome story. The genealogy of Christ, I think, includes so many people who were called for a purpose that they probably would not have chosen for themselves. But look at the amazing part that they played in God's redemptive story. Yeah, it's, it's so important. But we just have to get down to earth here and say, okay, great, but how do we live this truth? Because some of us here in this room might feel a bit like Leah. We might feel unloved or resented or used by somebody. Mm-hmm. But we have to go to the right source like Leah did. We have to ask the right questions. And the question is not... How do I change my life? How do I get out of these circumstances? How do I promote myself? Um, How do I get noticed? 
so that I can fulfill my greatest desires. Have I ever been there before? <laughs> Remember that seed of discontent planted in that Betty Friedan planted in the early 1960s. Remember that? Those 15 women? She wanted a way out of her circumstances. And then she got a bunch of other women to try to get out of their circumstances as well. We have to, instead of doing that, we have to begin by asking the core question, and it's this. How do I glorify God in my present circumstances? Because our default, our natural position, um, is to make everything about me. You know, we all do it. That's our default. But our transformed position, our reborn in Christ position, is to make everything about God. And it's only when we love God first with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength that we can experience his peace, his joy, his comfort, his confidence and, commit- and contentment within our circumstances, no matter where we find ourselves. And if you want to jot down references to encourage you on that, you can find that in Luke ten twenty seven, Ephesians Correct this time. Ephesians <laughs> 6, 23, and 1 Timothy 1, 14. Ladies, both Leah and Mary have shown us how to glorify God in their ordained circumstances. Such a rich, rich picture for us. And, you know, I love to think about um, Mary kind of in the synagogue, just sitting there maybe in a corner, listening to scripture being read. And I love that picture of her. And I think when you think about that, ladies, think about her even listening to the book of Joshua. And she would have heard over and over, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And she would have heard, do not be afraid. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. The Lord is with you. I I just love that. Do we have that same heartfelt attitude and praise to God with the role he's given us, even when it's hard, like Mary who leaned on the truth of God's word and believed him, and like Leah who finally settled in her heart knowing that, you know, everything that God had given her. And that's so important Mm -hmm. that it's his presence. So I think that's key. It is key. And the reality, the reality is that living our lives with purpose as God designed us for is part of his story of redemption. We're called to be unashamed of who he created us to be because he created us to be his ambassadors. And our role, ladies, is perfectly suited for that job. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ladies, the fact that we are women is purposeful. Remember the meaning of the name Eve. It means life or life-giving. And it is through our womanhood that he's given us the privilege of being Christ's ambassadors. Christ, remember, in John eleven twenty five, 25, Christ is life. And we get to be his ambassadors. We are called to be unashamedly righteous unashamedly righteous in a world that is devolving every day into unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. You can find that in Romans 1. They claim to be wise, but they have become fools. So God has given them over. Then in Romans 8, it gives us such great hope. This is where our hope is, because we believe that our creator made us to bring glory 
to God, to himself. And he has made each one of us in this room uniquely designed and Mm -hmm. uniquely situated to do just that. Yeah. And so lastly, ladies, one of the best ways to give God his glory that's due him is to speak about him and share your faith. It's a good time, I think, to use these current situations in our evangelism efforts because the days are growing darker, the rebellion that we're talking about. So no matter who you are, if you are a believer, the most important role I would say you have is you are an ambassador for the one who saved your soul. And recently I met this lady on the plane. I struck a conversation with her, and it turned out she was married with two young kids, and she was traveling for work, which was taking her out of the home, and I learned that she had some church background, but she, she wasn't born again. She wasn't claiming to be a Christian. So she was trying to manage what people now call that work-life balance. But it was leaving her frustrated. Of course, you can't have balance if you're not doing it God's way right. anyway. But, and I just want to say this because I understand that this is what women are up against. This is just a little um, note from, this is the New York Times. I know they're totally liberal. This is just a couple of weeks ago, though, in the economy section, okay? It's an article that talks about a shortage of child care. So what are women supposed to do? And I'm going to read you one line. As some mothers are pulling back, so some of them are not coming back to the workforce or they're just not at all. So as some mothers are pulling back, there are implications for the economy, Employers are missing a key source of labor at a time when they have nearly two job openings for every unemployed person. So stop doing what you think is best for your children and get back to work out there because the economy needs you. I mean, that's what, that's what they're hearing. This is what's going on. So <clears throat> that's what the, the world is feeding this woman that I was talking to on the plane. And so for some of the things she said about being married, I could tell that they were hitting some rough patches. So I made some presuppositions. I said, you know, you're probably tired, right? You're working outside the home, but because women are naturally designed to keep the home, you're probably still doing most of the house stuff. That can be a bone of contention between spouses. The man is designed to be the provider, protector, and the woman is designed to be industrious in the home. And at that point, she wanted me to call her husband. <laughs> Will you call her husband? <laughs> so <clears throat> I told her, I said, you know what? Wanting to stay home with your kids fulfills the role that God has ordained and that the Lord has put roles in place, and we best operate within those roles, and harmony is the result, and that there is hope in Christ to live that out. Well, halfway through the flight, she was convinced that I was speaking wisdom and that she should probably read the Bible. So that's what she said at that point. All I did was I just used a woman's role as a segue to talk about the Lord. But the touchstone was I validated her desire to be a full-time keeper of the home because God says that's your first priority. Your creator designed you that way, and it really resonated with her. Mm-hmm. Now, We're not saying that you can't work outside the home, that that's a sin or something. No, we're not saying that at all. But women are hearing this, what I just read from the New York Times, from the world. And then they're being told to suppress that God-given desire. And we as Christians, ladies, we want to counter that. Take an opportunity and say, no, this is what God said, and it's good. And validate that when you hear someone talking. And it may give you an opportunity for evangelism. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, and it really all circles back to that original question that we started with. Did God really say? 
Ladies, the Bible is our plumb line. In a time where there are no lines, there are no absolutes, but there is a lot of sadness and there's a lot of confusion Confusion. out there. Mm -hmm. Even some of you here today may be experiencing some of that. Because I know, we know that there are as many stories in this room as there are women in this room. Mm -hmm. But I'm certain that there is um, no life here, nobody here that today cannot be realigned with God's ways. When you begin to see the role that God currently has you in today from a biblical perspective, And it's our prayer, really truly is our prayer, that you leave here today with an understanding that God sees you, God hears you, God is attached to you, he's Mm -hmm. present with you, and he wants you to glorify him specifically as he has designed you. Because this, ladies, is where you're going to find your purpose and your joy And for those of you who feel like, oh my goodness, I've really messed up, (laughs) you know, maybe you haven't understood the unique way that God made you, or perhaps you have understood how God made you and you said, "Uh uh-uh, not doing it. You've rebelled against him. Mm -hmm. It's never too late. There's always repentance and there's always a new start and there's always an opportunity for a new direction for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe you are like the psalmist that said, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you have taken hold of my right hand, and with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. That's Psalm 73, 21 through 24. Receiving and obeying God's counsel begins with repentance. And guess what? We can repent 24-7. I mean, that's we can do that all day, every day. In fact, Jeremiah 24-7, ironically, says just that. It says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. I'm never going to forget Jeremiah 24-7. 24-7. 24-7. So this morning, ladies... We've seen the history of how we got to this point in our society, the roles that God has created and why they are good and how we can live better for his glory. And maybe your takeaway this morning is that you now have more information about the worldview of feminism and it will help you talk to others, especially the young women in your life, or perhaps you've seen where you've adopted that view. Or maybe you've been discouraged about where God has you, and hopefully you've been encouraged this morning. And definitely, too, we just wanted to make a note, if that is happening, and if you don't do it right now, get your nose in the Word. Get your nose in the Word and wrestle it out with the Lord. He will speak to you there, and he will help you to embrace the role that he's given you. Maybe you've been reminded that being a helper is good. And submission is good. And it's made you want to live more boldly and joyfully as God designed you within the society that seeks to undermine biblical truth, which is really our title. (laughs) But we know we all want to glorify the Lord wherever he has us. And whatever you've gleaned, we are so glad that you were with us this morning. Yeah, we're very glad. And we just want to end by praying for each one of you. So bow your heads with us, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these women. I thank you for their hearts, that they're here to learn what you 
have encouraged their hearts. But we begin, Lord, by just thanking you. Lord, we thank you for creating us with beautiful purpose, Lord. Each one of us here, we have a purpose designed and created by you. Thank you for giving us your word that helps us to understand and follow your design and your purpose for us. Thank you, Lord, for continually forgiving us Mm -hmm. when we step away from your plan and we Mm -hmm. step away from your purpose and we want to do it our way. Please, Lord, give hope, confidence, and boldness to each of us as we try Mm -hmm. to live out your good design in faith, Lord, Mm -hmm. believing that your design is good for us. Lord, please bring clarity to um, any woman here and comfort to any woman here who needs to know that you see her, that you hear her, and that you, Lord, will never leave her. Lord, cause each one of us to desire your will. And then, Lord, please shape our own will to match yours. Lord, give us the courage and humility to live unashamedly righteous in a corrupted and sinful world. And we praise you. Lord, we praise you as our creator, our designer, our savior, and our king. Mm -hmm. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.